Welcome to the November 7th edition of Mountain Money. I'm your host, Roger Goldman. I'm here with my favorite substitute co-host, Kimberly Flores. Good morning, Kimberly, and thanks for stepping up. Thanks so much for having me this morning. We've got a great show today. I'm happy to be here. Today on Mountain Money, we're going to start with Stephen Spaulding. Rumor has it, I don't know, there's some election tomorrow, but anyway, I don't know what it is. But anyway, (laughs) Stephen Spaulding is a financial advisor with Edward Jones, and he's going to join us to discuss how the results of this year's midterm elections could affect the stock market. We're then going to follow up with Dan Howard dance with the Park City Chamber and Visitors Bureau. He's going to visit us to talk about an overview of the important, the most important economic element of this community, the potential ski season. That's right. And then we're also going to have Rhonda Sedaris, president and founder of Park City Lodging. She's going to join us to talk about the news that they were just selected as one of Utah's 100 companies championing women. Mountain Money ends. KPCW's development director, Sarah Irvin, shares highlights of the station's Give PC, Live PC, Give PC efforts. So excited to hear how we wrapped up those totals there. Uh, all this and more coming up on Mountain Money. As anyone who has tried to watch television in the last couple of weeks knows all too well, we have an election coming up tomorrow. And while the endless Mike Lee and Evan McMullen ads will finally vanish from our television screens, there will be some longer-lasting implications of tomorrow's election. Today, we'd like to focus on how the election might, fa- might affect the markets. One of the great things about Wall Street is that there are a bunch of people up there who collect statistics on absolutely everything. And while the past is not always prologue, particularly when you're talking about something as complex as the market, it's interesting to see what history would suggest. We are so lucky to be joined today by Steve Spaulding of Edward Jones to give us some context on what's happened in the past and what we might expect. Steve, welcome to Mountain Money. Roger and Kimberly, thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. So before we get to what we've learned from elections in the past, let's start by reviewing a bit about year-to-date market performance, and then maybe you can talk a little bit about what are the factors that you've seen um, as major drivers recently. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So first, you know, the market, um, usually the market refers to stocks, and one of the most common measures of that is the S&P 500 index. Uh, There are other parts of the market, but the S&P 500 is down about 21% year to date. Um, And then a diversified portfolio is also going to have some bonds in it. So if we think about bonds, those are down about 16% year to date right now. Uh, And then, of course, a lot of investors own other things, which might include tech stocks. So the NASDAQ is down about 33%. Ouch. Uh, You got small caps, international. Some people might have some gold uh, and Bitcoin. So all of those things are down. Really, really the only, you know, the only asset generally that's uh, not doing badly is cash. Um, oh, sorry, go on. No, no, go on, Roger, please. And, and, and we're going to turn to, and what do you think has been driving that kind of market performance, big yeah, picture? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So I think, the, I think the main drivers of the negative market performance this year have been persistent high inflation. And then, of course, you've got the Fed raising interest rates and not doing it shyly. I mean, they are aggressively raising interest rates. You've also got fears of recession. Uh, you've got the war in Ukraine. You've got ongoing uh, strict COVID policy over in China. And, um, and then ongoing supply chain challenges. So I want to talk, we're going to talk a bit about conventional wisdom and reality uh, during our talk today. Uh, and I want to start with one that, that most people generally believe. If you look at recent polling data, most Americans feel like the economy is better um, uh, served by having Republicans in charge. Let's look at the past because, you know, you, you, you found us some really interesting data that Edward Jones has pulled together. Let's talk about Dow Jones' performance under a Democratic versus Republican presidency first. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, you know, I have to uh, put in the caveat that, 
historic performance does not uh, <laughs> determine future performance. And you also have to tell us to invest wisely. Uh, invest wisely, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you all that stuff later. But, um, but this, this data goes back to 1901. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, it does, in the footnote. Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. I've got, I've got different, yeah, different things. Um, so I'll be talking, I do have to warn people, some of the data I'm talking about is, yeah, back to 01, some's back to 1962. But yes, this, this data that we're talking about right now. So, um, well, first and foremost, I'm gonna discourage all clients of mine and all investors out there from investing based on politics and elections. Uh, while government policy does, of course, have an important impact on investment returns, it's extremely difficult to anticipate what policies are gonna go through and then uh, what the consequences of that'll be. But that being said, here is some broad historical perspective. Um, interestingly, the stock market has increased under every political combination in Washington. And uh, we've had an av annual average return of about 10% per year. The economy has grown regardless of who controlled the White House and Congress. Uh, the stock, now here's, here's where, you know, specifically to the, to the parties, the stock market and the economy have performed better under Democratic presidents and a Democratic majority in Congress. However, inflation has been lower during Republican presidencies and congressional majorities. So take that for, uh, for what it is. I, I think one, you know, one of the biggest challenges, though, really, just in terms of investing around the, you know, the elections, is that, you, you know, we've heard this, I mean, right, you know, McMullen and Lee and, and many other things. A lot of, uh, you know, a lot of promises made, maybe not really all that realistic or achievable, but uh, they, they create emotion, right? And, um, and so, and I think that's, that's just something really important. When it comes to investing in emotion, it's a dangerous combination. So uh, we, we, we talked about how the markets have performed this year. Do we have any sort of historical data on, do, do markets typically do well leading up to midterms? Or is that, is, is that something that, that was unusual and, and really being driven by other factors like inflation this year? Yeah, I, th I think this year has been an anomaly, right? So it's, it's kind of hard to say what the election uh, impact has been, just given, just given all the other things going on. But historically, uh, the 12 months leading up to a midterm election usually underperforms and uh, experiences elevated levels of volatility. And so by that, what I mean is the average return is, has been about 0.3% since 1962, so about the last 60 years. So basically flat, right? In 12 months of just, of, of seemingly nothing. However, um, the best year in that period of time was a 28.5% return, and the worst 12-month period in that was a negative 31.8% return. So it seems like there's not much going on, but boy, there's a lot really under the surface. Do you see any differences based on whether one party or the other changes control of one or the more houses of Congress? And then more specifically, any difference between the presidential first terms and second terms? So those are two, two separate questions. I guess let's go the control of Congress. We, we talk a little bit about you know, who's in control in the presidency um, over the last 120 years. But, but what about Congress? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so you know, interestingly, uh, the market, you know, we, we uh, may not like when there is gridlock in Congress, but the market loves gridlock. <laughs> uh, and the reason for that is 
that it means that nothing is going to get passed. There won't be any changes in legislation, anything significant that changes. And, um, and investors and companies like that because it means that there's predictability, there's clarity on, on what's, uh, what's coming up down the road. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so, 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 they, so if we get a mixed Congress, um, I think that could, be, that could be positive for the market. And do you think they've priced that in? Do you think that the market expects there to be a mix at this point? Uh, you know, I was looking at something this morning that uh, says there's a number of different scenarios and it could be, I mean, it's a free-for-all, I guess. I, I, I'm not going to make any, you know, uh, guesses on what's going to happen, but I, I think anything could happen. Interesting. As you read the speculation, you're right. I guess that the speculation is so far all over the map, and you look at something, somebody like 538 who's, you know, supposedly pretty good, and he says, you know, the Senate's a complete toss-up. And I, well, I guess you would have to expect that that uncertainty is reflected in the market. In other words, they don't have a presumption as to what's going to happen so that uh, there's not a result that we would expect to have a dynamic reaction in either direction because they priced in the uncertainty. Is that basically right? Yeah, I would say so. I think, I think you know, the market certainly does try to price in things, right? And, and, uh, and so when we talk about, I mean, you know, if, if we talk about kind of what may happen in the future, you know, we could chat a little bit about that. But... Um, so the market does try to price in what is anticipated, but I think when there's uncertainty like this, uh, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what, I'm, I'm not sure which way it's going right now. If Republicans do take at least one, if not both houses, we expect probably a lot of hearings, not a lot of new legislation. Yep, um, yep. Is that something that might be viewed favorably in the markets? Uh, well, I that's mean, good luck, I guess. Isn't yeah, it? I mean, yeah. again, yeah, again, I think, I think that'd be good. I so, <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, <laughs> well, no, for the market, I don't react yeah, for the market. <laughs> but if exactly. they take both houses, yeah. are we are we still talking about gridlock, or are uh, we talking about things just being jammed through as fast as they can? Well, I mean, it could, yeah, it it could. If if they were to get, if they were to take control, I think that would cause some more concern and, and perhaps uh, some more volatility. But. Um, you know, but I, but I, but I, but I think there are a lot of other factors that are more important than, than and that, that. And that's what I want to turn yeah. to. Um, the elections will be over probably not tomorrow. Probably it'll take a number of days. And you know, I think the smartest money says that it won't be over until a Georgia runoff for that Georgia Senate seat because nobody will get a majority tomorrow. Um, so let's talk about. So let's leave elections aside for a few minutes uh, that we have left and talk a little bit about uh, what do you expect the major drivers of the market to be for the rest of the year. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, my in my opinion, the drivers for the rest of 22 and well into 23 as well, uh, I think I think they're going to be the same as what we're already seeing, right? So, inflation, interest rates, uh, potential recession, the war in Ukraine. Um, I, I think I think really right now, uh, you know, the Fed the Fed kind of is in control. I mean, I mean, so to speak, in terms of you know how quickly the market maybe settles down and and, and things start to recover. They, um, they've indicated that they're going to raise rates, and I think that was a bit of a surprise to the market. Uh, I, mean, I mean, not that they're going to continue raising rates, but that they're going to do it more aggressively and for longer than perhaps was expected previously. Um, so that's, you know, I think inflation, the rate of inflation and, and, the, and the pace at which that starts to 
go down, and then the um, the Fed's response to that is going to be really important. I, I want to come back to that last week. W- what did we what did we derive from what the Fed said last week? I mean, obviously there was a three quarter point bump. Yeah. I think a lot of people were hoping that that was the end of the stiff medicine, and that we'd maybe see a lower rate going forward, or maybe stop. Yeah. What did what, what what was the vibe that that was derived from the market last, from from the Fed last week? Yeah, I don't, I don't think there was a surprise in the fact that they raised uh, the rates um, three quarters of a of a percent. Right. That that was that was anticipated. That was priced, priced in, in. Yeah. Yeah, like we talked about. Uh, I think it was the messaging that the Fed gave that uh, that they were going to continue to be hawkish, meaning they were going to not let off, you know, let off on the gas, uh, and they were going to continue to raise rates as long as it was necessary. Um, it's, you know, I, I think their their feeling is, look, we'd rather perhaps overshoot the mark on raising rates than pause them prematurely. Uh, so, um, and 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 the expectation was that they were going to maybe maybe stop raising it, raising them at about four and a quarter. Now we're thinking more like five and a quarter. It's a really strange world where Fridays. I think would we get good job numbers on Friday? We had you know, we had good GDP growth numbers. Where good news is bad news. I feel like I'm in Alice in Wonderland world where where oh the the news was too good. The, the Fed's going to have to step in and stop all this. Is that really what's going on? Well, well. So I mean, regarding regarding job numbers, we did we did have some job numbers that were uh, you know surprised on the upside, right? The expectation was 200,000 more jobs, and and there was 260,000 more jobs. Uh, so that, that was a surprise. I think the thing, though, that's really important to understand, to recognize about the Fed, right? The Fed, the Fed puts the, uh, you know, they, they raise rates, kind of trying to put a break on the economy, but it's not like it stops immediately, right? It's like moving a big old ship, right? It, it takes a while for that thing to slow down. And so the job, job growth and, and, the, and the job market continue to be really strong, but, um, but that's a lagging that's a lagging indicator so i think we will start to see job numbers decline in the future it just takes a little while another uh, aspect of the upside down that we're in that you were talking about earlier was um, the strength of cash and bonds yeah yeah Can you talk a little bit about that yeah absolutely so bonds you know bonds have uh bonds have really taken a hit and and normally bonds are where you're going to kind of you know I, I never tell people it's safe money right i mean there's risk in bonds that's that's uh uh, that's, that's sometimes that's kind of a misunderstanding, but they often will provide a much more stable place to put your money and get, and get some decent income. Uh, unfortunately this year with rates going up, uh, bonds, like I said, they're down 16%. I mean, that's pretty much unheard of, right? Uh, and, and often when stocks go down, bonds are going to stay stable or even go up. Um, but here, here's the thing is that, you know, the Fed... The Fed's been raising rates. Uh, rates hit above four uh, percent recently, and I think you know I think we're kind of close to the point at which um, rates are going to peak, and that's a good time. Yeah, that's a good time to. Uh, I think that's a good time to start putting money into bonds, and not just short term, but but even some of the intermediate and long term bonds. Let, let's take a step back and do sort of bonds one hundred and one because it's not intuitively obvious why bonds would have gone down that much. Yeah. Can you just take a second and explain the inverse relationship between interest rates and, and bond pricing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and I you know I try to when I'm talking to my clients, I try to use this kind of simple example of like, okay, I've got, I've got a bond, I own a bond paying me 2%, right? And there's a new bond that comes out because the Fed's raised rates and it's paying 2.5% or 3%. 
Well, if I went to the market and tried to sell my 2% bond, you know, nobody's going to pay me the same amount for 2% if they can get a 2.5%, right? So I got to discount the price of my bond in order to be competitive. There was a weird, almost, you know, rock star ticket-like rush last week to buy a federal bond. Yeah, the I-bond. Can, can you explain that? And, and is that going to be an opportunity that comes again? Yeah, I, well, I, I, think, I think that rate has, uh, I think that, that's one and done, I, th I think. Um, you know, never say never, right? But uh, so the I-bond, which is um, an inflation bond, it's, it's priced, you know, it, 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 it pays a, uh, you know, pays an interest rate kind of based on what's, what's happening with inflation. It's not a fixed thing, though, right? So it's, it's good for six months. Um, you can only put 10000 bucks into it, so it's not like you can, uh, you know, park all of your, all of your assets into it. Um, and the thing is, I think, you know, I think with, with the expectation that inflation is going down, uh, the, the, the rate that, that I-bonds is paying or are paying uh, will start to decline. So that, that was kind of a, you know, locking it in for a brief period of time. Um, now, I-bonds have to be bought through the Treasury Department, so I don't, I don't actually deal in them. But, um, but yeah, they were very appealing, and the website even crashed because everybody needed a piece of that. It, it was easier to get tickets to see Taylor Swift. I mean, it was, it, it was up over 9%, I think, uh, Thursday and Friday when the website went down. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but this does take us into another area. We talked about how bonds have gone down. You're seeing uh, investors now asking you, I am sure, okay, can I get 4 or 5%, 6% in bonds, and if I hold them, do I sort of reduce my risk? Yeah, absolutely. So, so bonds, um, I, I think the important thing to think about is, you know, you can buy bond funds where you've got a little less control over what's in there, what the, you know, there's no specific maturity date for a bond fund because it owns so many different uh, bonds. But if you were to go out and buy an individual bond, right, uh, you have a lot of control over the maturity dates, the duration of it, the, the interest rate you're getting paid. And so it's, as long as you hold it, I, I tell clients, look, if you're going to buy a CD or a bond, um, buy it with the intention of holding it until maturity. And you're, and you're pretty much guaranteed, you know, with a CD, you're guaranteed. With a bond, you're not guaranteed because there is default risk. But, uh, you know, you're pretty much, you're pretty solid on, on getting your money back, right? Somebody's going to pay you the interest. And, that, and that's the beauty of a bond. You're getting income. And then, uh, and then if you do hold it until maturity, you get your principal back. So it's, it's a... You know, but, but you just want to make sure you're, you're, you're buying it with the right time frame. So your advice is consistent with that of the other bond. If you buy a bond, you should be shaken but not stirred. As <laughs> <laughs> you, said, you said it, Roger, the not price me. Of admission. <laughs> <laughs> so Steve, <Ba> <laughs> yeah. before we go, what kind of strategies are you advising uh, investors to pursue during this time? Yeah, well, so I'll tell you what, I'm not going to give you any hot stock tips, right? That's not what I'm here for. Um, I think what, what I'm recommending to clients is focus on the things you can control. Because this, this environment, like I said, emotions and investing are not a good combo. Um, so, and, and, you, and you can't control the elections, you can't control earnings and profits and, you know, Putin's behavior and all of that stuff. Just focus on the things you can control. So you want to make sure you got a diversified portfolio. You want to make sure you're limiting your media consumption, not KPCW, but, uh, you know, don't watch too much television. Don't check your portfolio and investments too often. Um, give yourself time, right? So if, if you feel like, oh, my gosh, I need to sell everything today, wait until tomorrow, right? Think about it a little bit. Um, keep focused on the long term. Uh, remain committed to discipline investing and taking advantage of buying opportunities. 
And finally, of course, have a trusted advisor who understands you and can give you personalized guidance like we do at Edward Jones. Steve can be reached at. No, I'm kidding. Steve, <laughs> thanks so much for being here today. Mountain Money will be right back. Thank you. With a foot of snow on the ground and those lovely clouds from snowblowers blooming like flowers at the resorts all weekend, who could think about anything but the coming of ski season? The last few seasons have been marked by turmoil and change as the impact of COVID has dramatically affected all kinds of travel. So what can we expect for the 2022 ski season? We've asked Dan Howard of the Park City Chamber of Commerce to peer into his snow globe crystal ball and give us his thoughts as to what we might expect. Good morning, Dan, and thanks for joining us. Good morning. Great to be here. Okay, Dan, let's start with last year. What did we see nationally with respect to things like skier days and occupancy? All-time highs. <laughs> and I will say that in the past, we've been able to look at previous years to sort of predict what would happen the next year. And the last couple of years, that has not been something we've been able to do. The patterns have been all over the place. We just haven't seen consumer behavior in a predictable way. Mm -hmm. But I can say that last year, we did hit all-time highs nationally, 60 million skier days nationally, which means all the resorts across the country. And it was also uh, 10 million participants. So you can kind of calculate it was an average of six, six. days per person. Uh, the ski industry has been worried for several years about flat numbers and increasing costs. But we've seen a big change uh, in consumer behavior. And COVID was a huge part of that. Mm -hmm. this, this draw to be outside and this idea that, wow, I can go skiing and also work from home patterns meant I could ski at different days than I used to be able to ski. So instead of seeing these big peaks of skier days and then these big, big drops, we just had a constant flow. And that was very true here in Park City, mm -hmm. where both of our resorts just saw a steady stream throughout. And it's much healthier for them in terms of operations to not see these massive highs and massive lows. Yeah. So what are they expecting this year for that to continue, these record highs? Uh, I think nationally record highs. I think that there may be some more competition for visitors. Mm -hmm. The United States has been visiting itself. And we saw for the first time this past summer, the borders opening up and competition coming from around the world. Now, those countries haven't reciprocated and sent people here. It's been a one way. And we can really see that we're in competition with the entire world for those visitors. There is still real pent up demand to travel because people felt that they were cooped up. And so people have been traveling. And it really worked out here in the summertime to see fewer numbers of people than we saw one year ago when they couldn't go outside the United States. So we saw more people here in the summertime last summer than we'd ever seen before. Now this past summer, we had a drop, mm -hmm. but that was a drop from an all-time high. And how was this summer as compared with, say, the, 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 I don't know what the baseline should be, three years ago, the, year, the, the summer before COVID? Right. Yeah. How was this summer relative to that? So most tourism people are looking at 2019 right. as okay. the base. And we did have higher numbers this summer 
than we had in 2019. And that tells us that COVID in some way kind of changed people's perceptions of Park City in general. Mm -hmm. That we struggled in past to have people come throughout the year. We had huge shoulders. And in, in fact, you know, I moved here 12 years ago and there were times where the ski season would stop and the people would lay off and we wouldn't see everyone back to normal until maybe November gearing back up. Okay, that pattern really isn't going to go back to that. And I, for one, will miss the two-for-one restaurant coupons. <laughs> but, um, but, Absolutely. Uh, it used to be my favorite part of the year. Uh, but, Dan, let's talk a little bit about what we, the kind of visitors we did see this yeah. summer. And are we starting to see a return of the business-driven meeting or convention? Is that, is that starting to come back it's, here? It certainly is. And m most places around the country have lost that business. It's, it's just not come back. People aren't getting together for group meetings and conventions in the volumes. We're not back to pre-COVID levels in that segment. But if there was a destination that groups were comfortable visiting and meeting in, it was here. And so our group sales team at the Chamber Bureau has been fielding more volume, trying to find places to have meetings. And those meetings this year were booked all the way through here to November, deep into the fall. And that's a really good sign because that group business really makes a difference for our town in September, October, and November. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off there. We were also looking at some interesting numbers um, for people that wanting to come stay here in terms of lodging. Mm -hmm. um, now that anybody can work from anywhere, and that seems yeah. like it's going to continue, that people are already planning out, obviously, their trips well into March. Uh, but it looks like we've got record number in terms of um, per night spends uh, for lodging. There is a really big shift, and I'm glad that you, you noted that. It's the shift is, is average daily room rate, which we call ADR. We are actually seeing lower occupancy projected throughout this entire winter, and yet our town is going to see the same amount or more in terms of revenue because of the change in ADR. Mm -hmm. These hotels, and this is kind of the sweet spot that the chamber has been hoping for that we could achieve the, the revenue that our town needs and to support the 14,000 jobs of tourism off of fewer numbers of people. Mm -hmm. If we could do that, then we're really getting closer to this ideal of uh, sustainability, which we're, we'll talk a little bit about. Yeah. I, do, I do want to, that is an important topic that I want to get to, but in terms of, let's look a little more at what we're seeing in terms of bookings for the coming winter. Mm -hmm. You said they're down a little bit. G mm -hmm. what, what kind of data can you share with us about what we're seeing so far? It's, a, it's already November, and of course, we haven't had the New York Times pick up on our lovely early snow cover, <laughs> which I certainly <laughs> hope will stay, but uh, t tell us what we're looking at. Yeah. So in uh, January, um, we're looking at about a 5% difference, and that's an increase. It's the only month of and increase. Is that because of anticipation of a large Sundance in part? I, a, li I think a live Sundance. The part, ability to have Sundance right. back in person mm -hmm. means an increase in the number of people that we didn't see the last right. two years. But February right now, we're showing 6% down from the previous year. And in March, we're showing 10% down. And that isn't... That isn't necessarily bad news mm -hmm. because on the other side, which is current bookings on the book, in January, we're seeing 32% up in ADR. In February, we're seeing 49% up in ADR. And in March, 
Right now, we're seeing 19% up in ADR. And when you combine that increase, even with the drop in occupancy, the overall impact of the town is actually increased financially off of fewer people. And as I said, that is kind of the sweet spot because we all know that people are desiring fewer people to be here, but the town has economic needs. How do you make that happen? Then who are who are these guests that can, uh, right. can afford these increased That's rates? Right. Well, I appreciate you asking because there is worldwide competition for these guests. These particular guests can choose any destination in the world, and they are our competition. It's not just ski mountains. They can go to Europe. They can go to the Middle East. These folks have uh, the ability to pick and choose, and we want them to choose us because we can get that revenue every day for our town off of fewer numbers of people. And every town is hoping for that visitor. So it's a competition. Luckily, you know, we're a competitive town. I think skiing is a somewhat competitive sport. We have a competitive point of view and we have to go out and, and attract them and remind them that we're their best option. And what do we hold out as our competitive advantages? What, why is the, what, what is the, how does the chamber market this town as being special? It's a great question. Uh, we are unique. Uh, there are a lot of mountain towns that, that offer some of the things we have, but uh, I think we have uh, an accessibility advantage that other mountain towns do not have. I think that we have uh, an authenticity that is really resonating with people. There's a simplicity about our town. Uh, a lot of ski towns are prefabricated. They were kind of created to get people close to a mountain. Our town was created to be close to a mountain because of silver. Mm -hmm. And so, and then for a while, there was no use for it at all. There wasn't even skiing recreationally. But now that there is, our position geographically makes it a very attractive thing. And the fact that our main street is from 1880, that's special. I mean, there are a couple of towns like Telluride is a good example of a town that's similar in look, but mm -hmm. how hard is it to get to Telluride? And these days, people really don't have the time. They're like, if they're coming from New York or Los Angeles, which are our top two markets, they're saying, I got to get in there. I got to get my skiing in. I got to get my family vacation in. I got to get home. Well, Park City really fulfills that. And also this idea that you're really somewhere uh, authentic and special. And I think our town is kind. I think it, it, is, it is not a snob appeal town, which is a very important thing that we're all wanting to hang on to, to say, be kind to everyone. You know, don't make this an exclusive thing. And, and skiing is already an exclusive sport. But I will say that the, the passes have brought down the pricing so that it is not, you know, just, you know, limiting who can be part of skiing. And we think that when you're with your family, I mean, we really do lean into family. And when you're with your family, you're making memories, you're having important conversations. I think mountains give you venues to have important conversations. And then everyone leaves and says, gosh, I, when we were in Park City, we became closer. Like, I remember that time. I'll treasure that time. And I think that's the promise that we make to families that you're going to bond when you're here and we're going to help you with authentic experiences. 
I'm looking again at your target audience and you're talking a little bit about family and how family uh, relates to your sustainability tour, your sustainable tourism plan. But there's a bit of like disconnect for me of the ideal, you know, uh, guests that we'd like to come who can fly anywhere in their private jet. Yes. That just doesn't scream sustainability to me. And I'm wondering how, how are you bringing those two together? Those that want the experience of our beautiful snow, you know, the best snow on earth, but also do, do these people have sustainability in mind? Is that important to them? Yeah. I know it's important to us. Yeah, well, increasingly, folks are feeling like, well, I want to travel, but if I'm being given options that I can do it in a more sustainable way, I will do it. I never imagined that ho that airlines offering, you know, carbon neutral flights that you could buy for extra would even take off. <laughs> so to speak. So to speak. <laughs> and yet people are buying it. People are buying tickets and then they're adding on these credits that say my flight didn't, you know, contribute. And I said, that's awesome that they want to do that. We're promoting car-free visitation, which not every mountain can do. But you fly into Salt Lake, you can take your shuttle up here. We've got free transit when you're here. The hotels have shuttles. You do not need a car. And that is actually reducing the carbon footprint. And it also makes it nicer for the visitor. But they're starting to think that way. Mm -hmm. How can I have a trip that doesn't contribute to, to our environment's you know, destruction? So, so car-free, what are some of the other big aspects that you're marketing as part of the sustainable tourism plan? So one of the important things is coexistence with wildlife. Uh, we know that wildlife are migrating through here and we have to coexist with them when you see a moose don't go up to the moose with your camera <laughs> to take a picture but we they don't know this if they live in new york they're not used to walking alongside moose i've been in utah for 10 years it's still hard for me not to stop and look but at a moose you and, <laughs> and by the way look at them but use the little you know uh, f photo yeah. enhance zoom, in. zoom right. to get the picture of the moose if you see a little moose especially stay away from that that's but but our guests don't know that so we have to put out education around that and and you know it's everything from recycling to how there are on the mountain and of course i think the best visitors in the world want to be more conscious of visiting the town and quote leaving no trace instead of what it used to be maybe coming to a place and just partying their brains out and you know consequence for the town that they left behind is not their problem we want that visitor that's much more conscious and i think that that visitor is a is being appealed to through our messaging and saying, I connect to those words. I want to be in a place that I can help take care of. I love that, what you said, these people that want to be more conscious, because I, conscious rather, I recently saw a statistic that showed that 79% of Americans do want to be more sustainable. They just don't know how. Right. So somehow we can be a leader here um, and educate our guests uh, about things that they can take home with them. Maybe not about, you know, getting too close to a moose, but maybe how to reduce waste or, uh, right. you know, use your vehicle less. On the Visit Park City website, there's a whole new section. It's, it's a drop down uh, in our sustainability area where it gives people pointers on how to have a sustainable Park City visit, what kind of behaviors that we are, are hoping to have from them. And I really believe that these great visitors, the, the best visitors that we're talking about that we would want are looking for those hints, are, are saying, I want to contribute to that. 
I want to be able to come back to Park City over and over again and, and have it be the same city that I visited. So I don't want to do anything to contribute to its downfall. Before we go, I have one, one more question. T tell us just a little bit about the job of the chamber in terms of marketing Park City. What, what, what are you guys doing? How do you do it? Well, these messages, as I said, they're critical. So you're shaping the right messages and then you're trying to get in front of the people who are the world is competing for. Uh, we have a few new tools. They're a little bit scary for Big Brother World, but uh, there's a tool called Connected TV, which is basically telling us who is watching what out there. And then we're able to say, oh, the folks that want to ski this winter tend to have these shows or these interests. And so we're going to put our advertising on those programs. We didn't used to be able to do that. Hand pick, pick, you know, pick and choose. Uh, but with web and with cookies and everything, we can actually see if they're shopping for skis, if they're shopping for jackets, we know that they're in, if they're interested in sustainability, we want to put our ad where they're shopping. And they go, oh my goodness, Park City. I never really thought about that. Let's put that at the top of our list. <laughs> Yes, I love that. And yes, it's also a little bit Big Brother. Uh, but that's that's the future of advertising. Uh, really quickly, where are we advertising to? Do, where are the big bumps? You mentioned New York, L.A., where else? Uh, well, it's for winter, you know, it's where people love to ski. And that's and Colorado is actually one of them. And it's I would never have thought that we could compete with Colorado for their own visitor. But it's getting so hard for them that it's easier for them to come ski here and they like our snow and they like how nice we are. And you're probably seeing the same Colorado plates all over town. You know, they they drive over here. And so California, Colorado, and New York are really top, but um, Chicago is another place. They don't have a lot of mountains there, so they have to travel to a mountain. And a we lot of have, snow, not a lot of skiing. And we have a good, good connections with flights there. Mm -hmm. And also we sort of have that Midwestern uh, friendliness that they are comfortable with. So Chicago is a great market. And surprisingly, these days, it's Florida. And that's because so many people from Canada and from the Northeast have moved to Florida with their ski mentality. They're living in Florida, but they still want to ski. And we have great nonstop flights from Tampa and Orlando and Miami and lots of ski clubs in Florida. So they're still Northeasterners, or, uh, but they're living in Florida and Florida is producing great numbers for us right now. We've been talking with Dan Howard of the Park City Chamber. We hope to get him back in the spring so we can recap how things actually went uh, for our ski season. And thanks for joining us, Dan. Mountain Money will be right back after this. Welcome back to Mountain Money. Governor Spencer Cox, the Governor's Office of Economic Opportunity, also known as Go Utah, and the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University, awarded Park City Lodging with the honor of being one of the top 100 companies in Utah championing women. Joining us this morning to talk about the honor is Rhonda Sedaris, president and founder of Park City Lodging. Rhonda, welcome and congratulations. Thank you, and thank you for having me. It is quite an honor. Um, we're humbled to receive this. Before we talk about the award, let the listeners know a little bit about what Park City Lodging is and, and what you guys do as a company. Um, we are a short-term rental management company and we also manage 14 homeowners associations. We manage shy of, shy of 300 short-term rentals. Um, we have about 85 employees and I've been in business since 1984. Excellent. So, so um, tell us a little bit about the award. What does it mean? What is it for? It's for recognizing women, and I and what we do is recognize minorities as well, um, and um, within our organization with our staff. So, 
We sponsor uh, women to become members of the Women's Giving Fund. Each year we sponsor a new member. We give them um, PTO, pretty generous PTO, three weeks in the beginning. We have 401k, work from home, flexible work week, job share, a number of, a number of uh, things that we do for our staff. And, and who decides on the award? Apparently, Governor Cox the and governor's, his, the governor's office. his committee. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not quite sure. We, we were pointed, this was pointed in our direction by somebody from the chamber. We got the application, we filled it out, and we were surprised well, and honored. We're second to last on the list in the nation as it relates to the, the wage gap. And it sounds like you guys have done some, some thought behind ways to not only employ women, but to, to well employ women. Can you talk about like how you implemented these different practices and why? I think the why is because it was easy. It seemed natural. Um, I own six employee housing units in Park City and I just purchased another one in Midway and we give our employees first crack and we give them a substantial reduction in the rent. I don't do it to make the money, I do it to keep them in town and to keep them healthy and safe and want to continue to work. I think the culture at Park City Lodging speaks for itself. We have received numerous awards in recycling and humanitarian and I, I just feel like we do what we can to champion them. I encourage the women and the minorities and any of my staff that work for us to participate in local nonprofits. They get paid for their time. Um, we also encourage them to participate in leadership programs. One of our um, executive housekeeper just got on the advisory board for Recycle Utah. I think that that will help them understand more of how the Latinos recycle or don't recycle or understand or don't understand and help bring that thought into Park City Lodging, into the housekeeping department because we're, we're pretty sustainable as a company, but there's a barrier on, on uh, getting everybody to understand it. And any nonprofit, they're paid to serve their time. One of the things that we've heard so much on this, as we've talked to local business owners on this show the last few years, has been the extraordinary difficulty of maintaining staffing. It sounds to me as though some of the things that you're doing are likely to have an effect of allowing you to retain staff. So you're doing well by doing good. Can you talk, am I on the right track here? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? You are. I, I, I feel blessed with the staff we have. I may be one of the only companies in town, but I feel like we're, we're just about fully staffed, honestly. And we have, I create positions for people that I think are worthy of, of uh, I want them to come to work for us. Even if I don't have a position, we just recently created a new position for somebody that came to work for us. The, they get three weeks PTO right off the bat, which is a lot. I pay 100% healthcare. We have a 401k. They get, um, they get to go to jazz games. They get to go to the baseball games. I buy their season passes for skiing. And I just think that the whole culture there, the entire team is compassionate towards each other. We're a family. We really are. I, I've got one of my employees who is celebrating their 20th anniversary, and I'm excited to see what that's going to be all about. <laughs> Speaking of retention and and large and small businesses, the uh, the fact that you've purchased six housing units for employees, mm -hmm. how many how many employees are you housing in these units? 
I've got uh, the house over in Midway. I have one employee in, and and then I took a nightly rental that my husband and I owned and turned it into a long-term housing for an employee who came to us from Spain and needed a place to live. And I said, well, that's what we're going to do, and it's it's pretty inexpensive rent. And then I've got four apartments at our building. I've had employees that live there in the past, but currently I have no employees. But three of the four are all service employees in Park City. And you're obviously in the lodging business, but is this doable for other small businesses and, and you know, mid to small businesses? I think so. I think you just have to want to do it. And, and like I said, it's not about the money. It's about what you're doing. And if you can do it. I have a four-bedroom house that I have one employee. I used to have two employees living there, and now I have one employee living there. Um, and you just make it affordable. Just before you came in, we were talking to uh, the, uh, Dan Howard from the Chamber of Commerce about what the upcoming skiing looks like, upcoming ski season looks like. So while we have you here, <laughs> can we talk a little bit about what your bookings are looking like sure. for, the, for the season? December's a little light. Um, we're fortunate enough to have some ski groups come in, and we haven't had a ski group in early December in, in a few years. So let's hope let's hope they have some of the snow sticking yeah, around for them. I think I think they will. I think the next uh, series of storms will help us out greatly. Sundance has been a blessing. If everything stays, we hope not to give any refunds. <laughs> I want to come back to what happened last year, okay. but, but let's keep going with this year. And February and March are a little light, but they're catching up. And I'm not worried about March at all. We're, um, I think we've got plenty of time to make up. And I think people are just waiting to see what the weather's doing and what the, you know, it is, it's a midterm election, but I think that that makes a difference in people's mind. And, and what did happen last year with Sundance? Last year, Shortly before Sundance, the festival canceled the um, event. We were generous in our refunds. We were one of the few companies that did give Sundance back quite a bit of money. But this year we have a new insurance that's available, a trip insurance that you can cancel for any reason, which that hasn't been available in the past. It's always been for a cause, uh, for a reason. And this year you can cancel for any reason if you choose to purchase that insurance. So to protect our owners, we're making that if you expect to cancel, you have to buy this insurance. Well, that's really interesting. So is that a new product that you found? It um, is. And, and who, uh, so, so some insurance companies is willing to write that. That's a really yep. interesting risk profile. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little higher percentage. Generally, so. you pay a smaller percentage in trip insurance. We encourage trip insurance all the time, especially since COVID. We, during COVID, we gave 100% of the money back. And that taught us a lesson that now you've got to buy insurance, but insurance doesn't always cover COVID. Well, that's really interesting because it allows you to, clearly your policy last year was designed to maintain long-term customer relationships. That's why you made that choice, I would assume. Exactly. This allows you to say to your customer, look, this particular risk, you can, you can, you can hedge. You can choose to hedge, and therefore, I guess if people chose not to buy the insurance, there wouldn't be, there wouldn't be as much of a reason to give them a refund. They made that choice. Exactly, and like I said, I have to protect my owners. My, the owners of the properties were extremely um, understanding when it came to the refund the first round. I don't think I had one owner that was hesitant that we made the wrong decision. So after that, it got a little. Uh, we had to plan a little better. Are you planning on taking? Um, on any more ownership, any more properties this year? 
Uh, Ooh, secrets. <laughs> okay. Maybe no, yeah. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. So in addition to 100 uh, companies in Utah championing women, you did have a couple more, I just want to say, in the last few years. Best in State and then Housekeeper of the Year was awarded this year. Talk a little bit about that really quickly before we wrap up. Housekeeper of the Year was actually awarded a few years ago. This year we got Manager of the Year, okay. which was a, a big deal. And the gentleman who received that is very humble. He's under 30 years old and his goal is to try to work as many hours as possible. It's That's it's, a great kind of employee. Isn't yeah, it? <laughs> it's not it's not healthy. Best in state, that was a blind judging. This is our fourth year. We're very very honored. It's a, it's a it's a tough uh, application. Well, congratulations, Thank Rhonda. Thanks so much for being here. Happy employees, uh, happy owners. You're doing great work. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Mountain Money. Uh, joining us in the studio is Sarah Urban. The last time I saw Sarah, it was 7.30 on Friday, and it was about 17 degrees, and she was jumping up and down with a sign that said, Live PC, Give PC. I kind of wonder whether that amounted to anything. Sarah, how did we do on Friday? Well, once we warmed up from that street corner uh, extravaganza, and there were hundreds of us out there all day long, um, you know, th it was an incredible day. Um, Joel Zero and, the t and Brandy Conley were on with uh, Leslie Thatcher this morning giving the overall numbers. Um, you know, we are just so appreciative to this community for their outpouring of support. Uh, when it was all said and done, and we are still tallying some final numbers, there's some prizes that we don't yet fully know about from the Community Foundation, but we're looking at KPCW having raised about $97,000, a little over $97,000, which is higher than the goal we set, so thank you to everyone who gave. Um, that came from about 440 individual donors, we think, uh, which is a little lower than last year. So, you know, we have some some interesting data to take a look at but um it sounds I think like it, the lodging numbers you know for yeah. people paying more <laughs> well and but it's it's kind of in line with you know i think um one of the the folks earlier this morning referenced that charitable giving nationally is is down this time of year compared to last time last year about 17 percent makes sense um you know with the economy and and, and some uncertainty in the market, um, inflation, whatnot, you know, I think people um, are, are certainly taking a look at where they can make some, some contributions. Here in Park City, the Community Foundation was up about 17% overall with their total Live PC number. Um, they cleared $5.2 million total raised, which was, uh, I think last year they were hovering right around 4.5. Um, and they did hit, we're so pleased, they hit their goal of individual donors. They were trying to get 6,500 individual donors uh, to participate in this year's Live, Live, Your, Live PC, Give PC. And they got to 62 some odd. So congratulations. And, and it really is a testament to how generous this community is. Um, and, you know, we're, we, um, when we look back over the years, um, last year was kind of a banner year. Um, here at KPCW, we raised about $114,000. Um, but the year before that, we were at 93000 And how many donors did we have last year? Do you remember? 480. So we're right about the, the slightly... We're slightly, slightly down on both, right? But mm -hmm. but in, in line, I think, with what we're seeing um, nationally. And But again, up from 2020. So um, this is... It's, it's fun to take a look at these numbers and <laughs> uh, run run some some trend reports and whatnot. Um, about 127 nonprofits participated this year in Live PC Give PC, and there were a number of new ones, which you know we, we're always so pleased to see the new nonprofits get out and participate. Um, we hope they look to us throughout the year and use our community calendar, use our PSAs, um, use us to help get the word out about the services that they're providing to the community. Um, 
but we're so, you know, we're just so pleased to be part of the nonprofits. <laughs> you said we're still waiting on the final tally. For those that don't know, can you kind of explain how the Community Foundation works sure. in relation to potential more prize money coming the or... Yeah, funding? absolutely. So um, one of the prizes when we learned this morning, actually on the local news hour, that KPCW won the Arts and Culture Leaderboard, meaning that we had the most individual donors in that leaderboard. We thought we had fallen just behind Mountaintown Music. They ended up winning a different leaderboard, which was um, the overall donor growth in their category. So um, because they got one prize, they're limited to one prize. So KPCW will win that leaderboard prize, which we're so pleased about. And thank you to the Community Foundation. Thank Thank you also to Promontory Foundation. They gave us a $5,000 matching grant that we used during Live PC, Give PC, which, um, you know, is always helpful. Um, those matches help inspire other givers. And then there's these different power hour prizes that we'll get for the number of donors during um, the two power hours of the day. Um, so we'll, we'll have a final tally, hopefully in the next couple of days. While we're doing thank yous, uh, we have to thank our sponsors, without whom we couldn't get this show done. Uh, we want to thank Jan's Mountain Outfitter, First Community Bank, Pacific Development with Pendry Residences, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Utah Properties, and San Francisco Design. We also want to thank the guests that we had on today, talking about the stock market and midterm elections, Stephen Spaulding, Park City's Tourism, Dan Howard, Rhonda Sedaris, and Sarah, thanks for being here today. KPCW Park City.